On Christmas Eve, December 24, 1968, astronauts Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman reached the moon's orbit as part of the Apollo 8 NASA mission. Uh, Humans had never traveled to the moon before, but the race was on, and in a desperate attempt to beat the Soviets, NASA adjusted the schedule to make sure America got there first. Knowing the importance of the mission and knowing they would have a huge worldwide TV audience watching the broadcast if they were successful, NASA told the crew to have something inspiring to say to viewers back home when they got there. To be sure, the world did need inspiring. I mean, this was back in 1968. Humanity wasn't doing too well in 1968. Racial riots, political assassinations, bloody wars against communists. It left everybody feeling a bit raw here on planet Earth. The crew was having a hard time thinking of something appropriate to say, though. Finally, one of their wives suggested reading from the book of Genesis. The crew liked that idea. How appropriate to read the account of God's creation of the heavens while flying through the heavens. So after successfully traveling three days through space to the moon, Anders, Lovell, and Borman took turns from the cockpit of their orbiting spacecraft, reading from a laminated copy of the first 10 verses of Genesis 1. The moment is now enshrined on a famous stamp. After the reading, Borman signed off. Good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you, on God's good earth. For just a moment, on a war-ravaged planet, inspired by words literally coming to us from the heavens, we are all reminded that the earth is God's, that the moon is God's, that everything is God's, and it's all good. That is basically the point of Genesis chapter 1. Everything is God's, and it is all good. And that's what we've been talking about in our series called Chapter One, A Slow Walk Through the Creation of the World, which we are wrapping up this morning. Uh, The chapter describes God's creation of the universe in six days with a very well-deserved rest on the seventh. We're studying this chapter because it's one that many of us are familiar with, but not one that all of us know that well. And we've been studying Genesis 1 slowly, we've been chewing on it, we've been meditating on it. Perhaps more than anything, that's actually what I've heard you guys have appreciated the most about this series, The Pace. Well, if you've enjoyed this series in the slow pace, I have very good news for you. After the first of the year, having completed Genesis chapter 1, we're just going to keep rolling. We're going to take a slow walk through Genesis chapter 2, and then Genesis chapter 3, and then Genesis chapter 4. This is going to take us up to Memorial Day when we might be genesis out. And after that, we're going to do something else so that we're not doing... Chapter 50 in 2038. But we're not done with chapter one yet. Uh, For our last morning, I wanted to do something a little bit different and give you the chance to ask some of the things that you've been noodling on during this series. I know that it has stirred up some reflections and some questions, and I wanted to give you the chance to share all that. Uh, Many of you have, and it's been kind of cool sifting through your thoughts So what I've done in an attempt to address as many of them as possible is to group them and simplify your questions a bit for easier digesting. I hate that I can't get to all of them, but I'd be happy to talk to you if I didn't get to yours. I also want to be humble enough to say that this is just me. This is just me. When it comes to discussing the Bible, 
There's this old Hebrew saying that goes, two Jews, three opinions. There's a lot of opinions when it comes to interpreting the Bible, even from the same person. I'd just be foolish to tell you that what I'm giving you is God's unequivocal answer to your very good question. But I am the one who is talking right now, so you get to hear what I think. So I have five questions that I've selected out of a couple dozen. Let's just dive in, and we might as well just start with the biggie. Question one, is the creation story a literal and historical account of the origin of the universe? And what are the implications if it is or is not? So you know that I've tried to avoid talking about science during this series. You just don't need to talk about science in order for the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the Bible. Besides which, there's just too much to discuss. Huge, multi-volume books have been written about the science faith topic. But the topic is unavoidable, and it's come up a couple times, and several of you asked anyway. So within traditional non-denominational Christianity, there is a very large percentage of people who believe that it is very important to understand the story of creation literally. It is a literal account of what God did in history on six 24-hour days 5,000 years ago. They think this for many reasons, but primarily because when in doubt, we should assume that the Bible is true. We should take God at his word. When we start interpreting certain parts of the Bible as less than completely true, they say we undermine the authority and the reliability of God's revelation to us. It also puts us on a slippery slope, they say. I mean, if creation isn't historically true, then what about other stuff? What about Noah's flood? What about the Exodus? What about Jonah? What about Jesus? Additionally, they say, we live in an increasingly secular and even atheistic society, and one of the ways that we need to push back against that is by holding on to a Christian worldview in which we believe that God can do impossible things, even including creating universe, an entire universe in six days. The biggest challenge that these literalists face, though, is the scientific evidence that the creation of the universe took not six days, but many billions of years. Scientists are not always right, but let's just say that on the age of the earth, they have a very strong case to make. Uh, in fact, a Pew study taken a couple of years ago of American scientists revealed that less than 2% of scientists embrace a six-day view, and it might even be less than 1%, depending on what exactly you're measuring. Now, of course, not everyone embraces mainstream science, but those who do and still want to accept Genesis as the word of God, this is what they do. They choose to interpret the story of creation as theologically true, but not historically accurate. In other words, all the important things about the story are true, absolutely true. God created the universe, humanity is the pinnacle of his design, and it's all good. Now, how exactly did God create it? Well, the author of Genesis just didn't know. He didn't have telescopes or archaeology or laboratories. He was writing history as they did back then and as he best understood it. 
Now, what I want to make sure I say this morning is that you can believe in either of those. You can be a literalist or not and still be a Christian. Personally, I don't think the gospel message of Jesus Christ is compromised by holding either of those opinions. And you can certainly be at rooftop and think either of those things do, too, as I know people do. I mean, one of our key values here at Rooftop is that we try not to divide over things not central to our faith. In fact, that's one of the things that makes Rooftop an exciting place, (laughs) having to talk about all those things. Having said that, we do need to understand that while there are not gospel implications for holding whichever view we do, there are other implications. If we read the story literally, for example, we have to be prepared to be rejected by an increasingly scientific world who thinks we're just being blind to facts. I mean, one of the reasons young people are leaving the church in droves is because they think Christians reject science. And they're not entirely wrong about that. On the other hand, if you read the book non-literally, we need to be careful that we don't start interpreting the Bible in a way that just makes it more believable. Because that can be the tendency here to think, oh, this story is hard to believe. It just must not be entirely true. You see, one way or another, to be a Christian, almost by definition, means to believe crazy things. I mean, if you can't believe that God made the world in six days, that's fine. But you still got to believe that he raised a man from the dead. That's also crazy. I mean, to be a Christian is to be crazy one way or another. Pick your crazy. (laughs) That's question one. Historical or not. Question two. What's the importance of God creating the universe through speech? Why not just create? This is a very good question, and I'm very glad that Dave Maddox asked it. Kudos to Dave Maddox if he's out there this morning. I picked it uh, because it's not something that we're really honed in on during this series. Repeatedly throughout the chapter, God creates and separates... By the power of his word, God said appears 11 times in the story. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the land produce living creatures, and the land produce living creatures. I mean, first of all, though, in terms of questions, who's God talking to? He's the only one who exists. He sounds like me making dinner by myself at home. Now I will make the salad. But more importantly, why not just do it? What's with all the announcing? Just make the salad. (laughs) Well, I've told you that uh, Genesis 1 is an introduction to the Bible in which we meet the Bible's main character, God. Not only do we meet him, but we actually learn what he is like. He is an artist. God likes to make stuff. And here's something else we learn about God in chapter 1. He's a bit of a talker. The God of the Hebrew Bible speaks. Uh, When the prophets receive God's revelation, they say, the word of the Lord came to me. They don't see God as much as they hear him. In fact, anytime they want to see God, God says, you know, well, you could see me, but then you die, 
so let's just talk. But even hearing from the Lord was dangerous. In Psalm 29, the psalmist describes the voice of God using Genesis imagery, and it is not altogether a pleasant experience. Here's what the psalmist says. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. That's a Genesis image. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The Hebrews understood Yahweh as a God who speaks, sometimes in whispers, sometimes in shouts, sometimes in long speeches, sometimes in single syllables, but always effectively. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The word that comes out from my mouth, it's not going to come back to me empty. It's going to do what I intended to do. So what's being emphasized here in Genesis 1 is the sheer creative power of the words of God. He speaks and things just happen. It's like uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek. Remember Captain Jean-Luc Picard? But even better. What does he say? Make it so. And it is so. Take us to that planet, Jordy. Okay, Captain, we're there. By the way, I've always been jealous of Captain Jean-Luc Picard on this point, uh, whether I'm at home or at the office, and I say, make it so. Everyone looks at each other like, is he talking to us? I think he's talking to us. (laughs) When God says something, it happens. And this becomes very important in the Bible and for us. Uh, First of all, it's one of the ways that Jesus' disciples recognize him as God. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were on the boat on the Sea of Galilee and they were being tossed by a violent storm while riding on the mighty waters? The disciples were freaking out, but what did Jesus do? He got up in the stern and he said in a loud voice, quiet, be still. And it was so. Waters died down. That's actually the moment in the Gospels when the disciples start to realize who Jesus is. They turn to each other and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? But they knew. They knew. They knew he was God. I mean, who else could make it so? But here's the other thing that makes this important. When God speaks to us, He's expecting something, right? Like when Isaiah says, his word's not going to come back empty. So when he tells us to repent of our sin, love our enemies, have more faith, be more generous, he's saying, make it so. Expecting that we will. The same God who spoke creation into existence is telling us to repent, believe, and be baptized. In fact, if you've ever wondered why you don't hear from God more often. Ever wonder that? Why you don't hear from God more often. Be honest with yourself. Maybe it's because you're not really ready to make it so. So why would God ask you to make anything? Question three. I'm still confused about how God created light on day one and bodies of light on day four. Help! (laughs) 
I added the help. <laughs> this is a tricky question, and a couple of you asked it. On day one, the author writes, and God said that there'd be light. And there was light. But it's not until day four that God creates the lights in the sky that produce light. The sun, the moon, the stars. So, what gives? Jeremy preached on this, and it is a very tricky topic, so I thought it would be worth revisiting, and not because Jeremy didn't do a very good job on this, only because some things bear repeating. So here's the thing. It's not really light that's being created on day one. Remember that the creation story has two halves. On days one through three, God is creating spaces. The land, the sea, the sky. On days four through six, God is filling spaces with stars, fish, animals, and people. So on day one, what space is God creating? He's creating the day and the night. That's the space. As the author writes, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness. He called night. So the space that God is creating on day one, it's the very notion of day itself. Basically, God is creating the space of time. This actually makes sense in the story. In order to create the earth in six days, you have to create the very idea of a day first. And how did they define a day? By light and dark. So it's not that God creates physical light on day one, photons and such. It's that he creates the notion of daylight followed by nighttime. I know this is hard to grasp because we think, wait, light comes from the sun, which isn't created until later. The Hebrews knew that too. But that's reading the story too literally, and that's one of the things I've been warning you about. If you read the story too literally, you start having problems. I mean, use your imagination to consider the possibility that light can exist apart from the sun. You actually don't have to work that hard to imagine this. I mean, the sky gets light in the morning before you see the sun, and the sky is still light even after the sun goes down. Besides which, the Hebrews believe that God was the ultimate source of light anyway. The sun only generates light because it was created by God the source of light, the definition of light. God is light. This is why one of the key features of the new heavens and the new earth is that there is no sun. We've been talking about how the beginning of the Bible in Genesis helps us understand the end of the Bible in Revelation. And that's true here too in the book of Revelation. What does John write about in the new creation? The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is the lamp. Question four. Part of the Genesis blessing is to be fruitful and multiply. So, should I have had more kids? I've had three and we're done. <laughs> Kudos to Blake Ahrens, who had the courage to ask this question. On Geraldine's behalf. <laughs> So remember a few weeks ago uh, when we talked about the blessing that God gives humanity. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the creatures of the earth. 
God is a giver of life. Not only does he give life, but he creates creatures that can also give life. And his great desire for humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, is that we become a creative, multiplying, extensive civilization. And he gives us this entire world to care for and use as we are building that community. Use the resources. Use the rocks. Use the trees. Use the animals. Use the precious metals. Use the radio waves. It's all for us. Don't abuse the earth. And remember that other people need to use it too, but feel free to use it. It's my gift to you, God says. Now, I made the point during that sermon that when it comes to multiplying and filling the earth, we've actually done a pretty bang-up job. Uh, There are 8 billion people on the planet right now. But here in modern America, as well as in other countries, birth rates are actually declining. I acknowledged, and I hope you heard this, that there are many complicated reasons for that. Those reasons include things that I talked about, but also things that I did not talk about. Uh, One of the things I did talk about was that the institution of marriage is less valued here in America, modern America. Children and parenting are less desirable, at least understood as less desirable. And traditional definitions of male and female are being rewritten. We know that's true. We also know that it's true that having children is expensive and that not everybody can have kids and that God calls some people to not have kids. So I tried to emphasize that this is a very complicated topic. Some of you said that my summary here was just too simplistic. I don't think it was, but I hear you. To the questioner, though, to Blake, should Geraldine have had more kids? My answer would be, Maybe. I mean, the more I get to know God, the more it seems to me that he just loves kids. Now, like I said, there are good reasons to not have kids, but there are also bad reasons to not have kids. And dare I say that a lot of people don't have kids for bad reasons. One of those reasons, I think, is because many of us want the perfect little family where we can make sure we have enough money and time for all our kids to have everything they need to be successful and beautiful. Uh, Michelle and I, my wife and I, we wanted lots of kids, but not too many because we wanted money for braces and the time to help our kids become professional athletes. And I'm not entirely joking. (laughs) But was that a good idea? Maybe not. I mean, hindsight's 20-20, but as our kids are leaving home, it's getting kind of lonely. Sure, everyone in our family has straight teeth, But maybe like four kids with ugly teeth is better than three kids with straight teeth. Depends on the teeth (laughs) and the kid. Now, Michelle and I are our own case. Uh, We actually tried to have more kids. uh, But after our boys were born, we we just couldn't. We kept having miscarriages. So we adopted a little girl, but maybe we should have adopted a few. I mean, she wasn't the only orphan in Guatemala. Uh, Miranda has actually gone on record... I wish you had adopted me some friends. This is kind of lame. (laughs) Is it just you guys and me hanging out again tonight? (laughs) Yay. But here's the thing. The Lord has found other ways to make us fruitful. 
Uh, You see, this command to be fruitful refers to having children, but to other things as well. I mean, in the Bible, it gets picked up as a command to produce righteousness in our lives. Perhaps more than children, God loves righteousness. As Jesus tells his disciples, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, be fruitful, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And of course, it's worth noting that Jesus didn't have kids. At the same time, he also had lots of them, spiritual kids. And he told his disciples that they could too. And everyone who gives up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. Uh, We had some friends over for Thanksgiving. They brought their children over. And their kids were running around like my kids used to at Thanksgiving. And I was feeling pretty sad uh, that my kids are growing up and leaving. And as I watched my friend's kids, I said to myself, these are my kids. My friend said, no, these are my kids. (laughs) That's the point, though. What does it mean for you to be fruitful? That's a question that you and the Holy Spirit get to answer. But here's my caution. Do not, do not let the American dream tell you what God's will is for your family. Question five. How did God create the world out of a chaotic ocean? Didn't he create the world out of nothing? So for our last question, I want to revisit one of the most challenging parts of this entire series, and it relates to the very opening of the book. So the first couple verses of Genesis read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. If you remember, this is a very different beginning to creation than the one in our brains. We think God created the universe out of nothing. And if we're scientific about it, we think the universe that God created out of nothing is a rapidly expanding universe that is filled with billions and billions of galaxies, stars, black holes, planets. The ancient people, they just didn't think like that. They didn't have telescopes. They just had a different, what's known as cosmology. They thought the world was flat, that it rested on pillars over a giant ocean, and that the sun and moon moved across a giant dome, the rakia, that held back the atmospheric sea. That was how ancient people, including people in the Bible, thought of the universe. And they also thought the universe started differently. It didn't start out as a big bang out of nothingness. It started out as an ocean. That's what's being described here in the opening lines of Genesis, a dark, terrifying, watery abyss. Most ancient creation stories start this way, with a primordial abyss. They thought that because it just made sense to them. Everywhere they looked was a terrifying ocean out of which they thought the land had come. This was their version of nothing, a dark, chaotic, watery sea. Now, I'm not saying that God created the world out of a watery abyss. I'm saying that's what the author thought. That doesn't make him wrong. It actually makes him normal by the standards of the day. Now, I know that's challenging for people to think that the story doesn't describe God forming the universe out of our version of nothing. 
which is why people try to get creative with the text. People look at verse 1, and they think, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They think, ah, well, in verse 1, God creates a watery planet. And in verse 2, onward, he forms and he structures it. But that's not what verse 1 is. Verse 1 is a summary of the entire section. This is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth out of a watery planet. Besides which, why would God, as his first act of creation, create a big, chaotic, uninhabitable, dark, terrifying, watery place? If anything, the story of creation describes God organizing chaos, not creating it. He divides and separates light from dark, land from sea. Remember, he's like a mom or a dad who walks into his kid's messy bedroom and says, oh, no, 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 this will not stand. We got to separate. We got to bring order to this chaos. That's what's so important about the story of creation, that God has formed and organized it in such a way in which we can live happily in the bedroom. God pushed up the land, held back the waters, brought up the plants, keeps back the sea, puts clothes in the dresser, takes out the trash so we can live our lives. I was listening to a Bible Project podcast this week featuring a chemist and an astronaut named Tracy C. Dyson. Uh, Tracy is a Christian, and she recently spent six months on the International Space Station. She's actually going to be heading back up soon, but I highly recommend the interview in the podcast. She talked about appreciating the story of creation from space. You see, we have this little envelope of safety on the earth, this tiny sliver of atmosphere on land where we can live and breathe and survive. And we are surrounded by darkness and cold and chaos. And Tracy said she didn't appreciate that until she was actually flying through the chaos. And as beautiful as the chaos is, it is also deadly. The universe is deadly. It's cold and dark and uninhabitable. But in the midst of all that, God gives us a place to live, a place to experience his goodness, his power, and his provision. Honestly, it made me think of our church, of the church. I mean, the church is our capsule. It's our space station. All around us is chaos. Violence, immorality, idolatry, dysfunction. It's almost hard to breathe out there. It's like we're still living in 1968. Wars, political turmoil, racism, social breakdown. But in the midst of all the chaos, God created a little sliver of space. He pushed back the darkness. He held back the sea to build a place where we can be fruitful and alive and grateful knowing that we do not exist except by the gracious provision of our creator and protector. Which brings us to communion. Uh, We celebrate communion on the third week of the month here at Rooftop. In our understanding, communion is a reminder from heaven that not only do we live by God's gracious provision, but we will live forever by God's gracious provision. We can live forever forgiven of our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we will live forever in a universe that is no longer dangerous. There will no longer be darkness or oceans or chaos, only light, only life. Before we take communion, though, one final illustration for you. So the astronauts on the Apollo 8 moon mission were not the only ones to celebrate their faith in space. 
Uh, maybe you know that one year later, when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong touched down on the moon as part of Apollo 11, one of Aldrin's first acts was to celebrate communion. In the lunar lander, on the surface of the moon. Aldrin was a Presbyterian, and he actually brought with him bread and wine that had been provided by his pastor back home. How would you like to be that pastor? I'm the one who gave Buzz Aldrin bread and wine. Apparently, though, NASA got so much flack from American atheists for the Genesis reading that they decided not to broadcast the communion moment. But Aldrin said he wanted to celebrate communion because, as he said later, communion, it's ordinary stuff, bread and wine, that reveals to us the love and the glory of God. He said, this is what the moon is. Ordinary stuff that reveals the love and the glory of God. This is what the sun is. Ordinary stuff that reveals the love and glory of God. This is what the earth is. This is what the oceans are. This is what the plants are. This is what the sea monsters are and the animals. This is what we are to each other. Ordinary stuff made in the very image of a very good, very generous God. That's what we get to think about when we take communion this morning. Ordinary stuff given to us by a very good, very generous God so that we can live forever on his good earth. Here's how we do communion at Rooftop. In a moment, we've got four stations up here with the bread and the cup. When you're ready, you can enter the center aisle, find an open station, take a bit of bread, ordinary stuff, dip it in the cup, ordinary stuff, eat it as a reminder of who you are in Jesus Christ as a forgiven saint. We've got gluten-free wafers up here if you need them and self-serve cups in the balcony and up here if you need those. If you're having mobility challenges, just wait till the lines die down. Raise your hand. We'll come serve you where you're at. Let's do that, Jason, the band. they got a song they want to share with you. Feel free to sing along, and I will come up afterwards to pray.